Well, greetings to you from your brothers and sisters in the CARBC, California Association of Regular Baptist Churches. We are an association of churches, about 100 churches throughout California, one in Grants Pass, Oregon, one in Reno, Nevada, one in Hawthorne, Nevada. And some people ask, what is the CARBC? And there is a handout on the uh, table in the uh, foyer that uh, explains a little bit of uh, our fellowship, what our uh, mission is, what our um, vision is, and so on. There's also, uh, there are some copies of the messenger, and there are also some that the church receives. And I hope that each month you take one of those and look at those, but that is the uh, news uh, bulletin from uh, our state fellowship, talks about uh, current events, things that are going on in our churches, but also some uh, perspective on what's going on in our world and uh, the changes of um, pastors and so on. And uh, it's a privilege for me to be here today uh, with you as you begin this time of transition uh, between pastors. Uh, when I was younger, much younger in uh, high school, uh, my family made a trip up here to Cambria and I think it was the dedication service uh, for the beginning of this ministry when Tom Mason was the pastor here. Uh, and of course, I knew uh, Pastor Stevens because he later pastored my home church in Santa Maria, and I've seen him off and on over the years. Uh, pastor Hollingsworth and I were friends from college times. I was uh, a freshman when he was a graduate assistant in speech class. So he was um, grading me on my speeches. Uh, and I will tell you that was probably not because of, of Pastor Hollingsworth, but uh, just because of myself. That was one of my hardest classes in college was that first year speech class. And then Pastor Law was a great blessing to us. And uh, Pastor Hollingsworth hosted some Central California meetings and a state meeting here. Pastor Law hosted uh, our retreat here, but I remember when we first came to uh, Cambria, uh, Pastor Hollingsworth uh, suggested we have a barbecue here, uh, kind of after the retreat was over, before people left to go home on Wednesday afternoon, and we did that for several years, and then Pastor Law, when he came, continued that, but also for a few years, we used the facility here for a pastor's and wives re retreat, and we're thankful for you in allowing that but also I know in helping that because that is a lot of work for a church and uh, we appreciate that. I also want to thank you for your monthly support. We are one of your missionaries and we are honored to be uh, one of your missionaries. And uh, thank you especially for the Christmas in July gift that we received and appreciate that very much and the notes that came along with it. I uh, like the note that said, who are you really? Uh, but uh, anyway, we, uh, we enjoyed uh, just remembering your grace and graciousness to us. And we are praying for you as uh, you begin this transition to a new pastor and pray that the Lord will again direct you to uh, the man who is going to give you the guidance, the leadership, who will preach the word to you, who, who will love you and shepherd you and care for you. And I want to just say this to you, and this is what I told my people when I... Uh, resigned from the ministry just about a year ago at uh, Santa Maria. We ended our ministry there uh, after 24 and a half years at Pine Grove Baptist Church uh, on December 31st. 
and began this ministry on uh, January 1st. But I told them this, if uh, God has someone, uh, something else for me, God has someone else for you. And I would say this to you, if God had something else for Pastor Law, then he has someone else for you to come and be your shepherd. Uh, praying for your pulpit committee, your pastoral transition committee, uh, they are good men. I've met with them, and I think that God is going to use them to uh, direct in this process. And I think that when it's all said and done, you will say God is good. And we always say that because God is always good, isn't he? Even in the toughest of times, God is good, and we need to remember that. But it is a privilege for me to be able to share the word with you this morning. There are some notes in your bulletin, because I want us to, to focus on what we have just done and what this all does mean to us in our lives. The phrase, in do this in remembrance of me, makes it clear that the communion service centers in Jesus Christ. Do it in remembrance of him. And there's some truths that we must constantly remember. Now, we know in life there are some things that we must remember, some things we would like to remember, and some things we do not need to remember. For instance, I need to remember my wife's birthday. How many of you men would agree with that? How many of you women would agree with that? I need to remember her birthday. There are some other things I don't need to remember. I don't need to remember the combination to my uh, gym locker when I was in high school at Santa Maria High School. I don't need to remember that. Now, there was a time I did need to remember that, and I didn't. It was after, it was after uh, Christmas vacation. And I went back to gym class, and I thought, oh, I remember that padlock, but I have no idea what its name is. I couldn't get into it. I had to go to the, to the little cubicle they had where the gym teachers all congregated, and they gave me the number. But some things I had to remember then, I don't need to remember that anymore. Here is something that we must remember. And there are two truths that are the two aspects of this one event, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember what Paul wrote later to the Corinthians after he explained communion in chapter 11. He explained the gospel to them in chapter 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you have received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. So he explains the gospel. He summarizes it. Christ died for our sins. He was buried, and he was resurrected. You notice he puts burial in there because the burial was evidence that he actually had died and the importance of the resurrection. The gospel has to include the resurrection of Jesus Christ because all of the benefits that we have as believers come to us as a result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he were not resurrected, Paul says later in this chapter, 
we would be the most miserable people on planet Earth because we would be people without any hope. But because he's resurrected, we are people of great hope and great confidence and people that possess eternal life. So we must remember the sacrifice of Christ's body and we must remember the shedding of Christ's blood. And let's talk about those two aspects of what we need to remember. Christ sacrificed his body at the cross. When we go back to the Gospels, where communion was introduced to the disciples out of the Passover supper, in Luke 22 and verse 19, Jesus said this to his disciples, and he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He said, it is my body that is sacrificed. God come in the flesh. John chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God taking on human body, but also a human nature, the combination of divine and human natures in one person. So he says, I am giving my body. It's a human body. That is not all there is to the person of Christ, but it is. he did have a genuine human body. Now, it tells us in John 3 that the Father gave the Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But you remember what we also read in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12? Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It says this is the only name given among men. The Father gave the Son, but the Son also gave himself. These scriptures are not contradictory, they're complementary. They give us the fuller picture of the giving of Jesus Christ's body. The Father gave the Son, the Son gave himself, Galatians 1.4, who gave himself for us, or gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. It says, the Son gave himself. Paul makes that point to Timothy as well in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 6. Who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Now that's the verse that follows a very familiar verse, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And Titus chapter 2, verse 14, who gave himself for us, substitutionary. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. He says he's redeemed us, he gave himself, 
but he has designed us to be zealous of doing good works. Not good works that bring salvation, but good works that are the evidence of our salvation. So Christ sacrificed his body at the cross. This sacrifice fulfilled Christ's role as the Passover lamb. We have just one reference to that, and even though that idea is very uh, deeply fixed in our thoughts that he fulfilled the, the typology of the Passover lamb, it's only mentioned one time, and that is 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Now, this is in the context of church discipline. He's telling the church to purge out that which is evil. But he says, since you are truly, you truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Christ, our Passover. You remember where the, New Te- where the Old Testament begins the introduction of the Passover? It's way back in the book of Exodus, back in the 12th chapter. You know, the Jewish people have their own calendars, right? Their, their calendar starts in April. That's their first month, and they have their own festivals and, and their, whole, their calendar. Well, this is where that calendar began with the Passover. That was the first month of their calendar. And this was when they were in Egypt. This is just before they left Egypt in the Exodus. In verse 1 of Exodus 12, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation. And he told them what they were to do. On the tenth day of the month, every man shall take himself a lamb according to the house of his father a lamb for his household. And remember, they were to kill the lamb, to put the blood on the doorposts so that the death angel would pass over and not strike the firstborn dead as he did with the people of Egypt in this 10th plague that finally brought to a conclusion this contest between Moses and God and Pharaoh. And that is what brought the, the release from Egypt and all of the events of the Exodus and uh, the wilderness wanderings and finally the entry into the land of of, uh, Canaan. But here was the beginning of this whole idea of the Passover lamb, the sacrifice, and Christ is the one who fulfills that typology in in the New Testament. It also, the sacrifice of Christ also filled the typology of the Day of Atonement, which takes place uh, this month. The Yom Kippur is in October. I think, it's, I think it will be this month. Um, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 23. Therefore, it's necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these better sacrifice than what they offered in the tabernacle and later in the temple on the Day of Atonement. But that was the high point of their calendar year in relation to sacrifice. The priest went in, offered sins for uh, an offering for himself, and then for the sins of the people. And here it says, For Christ was not, has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, 
but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He fulfilled the typology of the Day of Atonement, that picture that was painted in the Old Testament. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There is this finality in his sacrifice. It's not only here in this chapter, but it uh, is earlier Uh, in this chapter as well. I think we will come back to that. But uh, in verse uh, 12, in case I don't come back to it, in Hebrews 9, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having uh, having, um, obtained eternal redemption for us. One sacrifice for all sin forever. That is what he did. And so when we take the cup and we say, this is the new covenant in his blood, it is the covenant that was of salvation that was cut at the cross, and it took care of all sin, past, present, and future. So we will never stand before God and God say, oh, there's a sin over here in your life that's never been covered by the blood of Christ. Every sin has been taken care of by the blood of Christ. Let's go back to Leviticus, because here's the explanation of the Day of Atonement. It says in verse 5, now let me go to verse 3, Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and a ram as burnt offering, Aaron the high priest. He shall put the holy linen tunic and linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash, and with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on, and he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. One animal would be slain to picture substitutionary death and the other sent out to the wilderness to represent removal of sin. Substitutionary death, complete removal of sin. That's a note, by the way, in the MacArthur Study Bible. So the sacrifice of Christ fulfilled his role as a Passover lamb. It fulfilled the typology of the Day of Atonement. It accomplished what the Old Testament system could not accomplish. Again, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10 and verse 10. By what will we, by that uh, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. They pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They gave the person forgiveness of sin who offered it, but it was not a permanent solution for the sin problem, but it pointed toward what Christ would do. But this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, 
sat down at the right hand of God. Now, what does that verse indicate? One sacrifice for sin forever, it means there's nothing else that has to be done. There's nothing that we have to add to the word of God. There's nothing we have to add to the word of to the work of Christ. In fact, if we try to add to the word of God or try to add to the work of Christ to say this also must be done for salvation, then we have compromised the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's an issue that Paul dealt with in the book of Galatians. If you add to it, you have changed it. And we dare not change what God has set forth in his word. So he goes on to say, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, which means it's a picture of his work being completed. No more work to be done because he is now seated at the right hand of the Father until he returns for us in the rapture of the church. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Accomplished what the Old Testament sacrificial system could not accomplish. And then the sacrifice of Christ was substitutionary. It was given for you. Here's what we read in the Gospel of Mark. And in the 10th chapter, in the 45th verse, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. To give his life a sacrifice. The idea of ransom is to give his life to, in sacrifice that God would accept to satisfy the demands of a holy, righteous God. We call that propitiation, satisfying the demands of God. That's a picture from the temple. There's also a picture from the marketplace that we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, purchased in the marketplace and set free, purchased as a slave to sin and set free to being free in Christ. There's also a picture from human relationships that we are reconciled one to another. And in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, and we have the ministry of reconciliation, of telling people about reconciliation as ambassadors for Christ. That's out of uh, the picture of human relationships. We were enemies with God, Romans chapter 5, and through the sacrifice of Christ, we now put back into fellowship with God as we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's also the illustration from the courtroom. We've been justified. We've been declared righteous in the courtroom of God on the basis of the work of Christ because we are now in Christ and in justification, our, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. So now, in a legal sense, we are righteous. So from the courtroom and the temple and the marketplace and from human relationships, God uses these illustrations to tell us we are his people. There is no more penalty for sin that we will endure eternally, that we have eternal salvation. The sacrifice of Christ was substitutionary. He died for us because we could not die for our own sin. We were not an adequate sacrifice. We did not fulfill the typology 
of the purity and the sinlessness of the uh, Passover lamb. So we must remember the sacrifice of his body. We must also remember the shedding of Christ's blood that took place at the cross. The specific term for shedding of blood is used by Jesus of his coming crucifixion. Let me just read that from Mark chapter 14 and verse 24. He said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. He says, I am shedding my blood. The word often refers to a violent death, as it does in Acts 22. And in verse 20, and when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, remember how, how that happened, how he was stoned to death? He says that was the shedding of blood. It indicates there a violent death. The crucifixion is a violent death. Even though a person in crucifixion dies from asphyxiation, they can no longer breathe. Their arms are up, their legs are are bound. And as they get weaker, they can no longer push themselves up to get breath as, as their body collapses. Remember they asked if Jesus, they were talking about breaking his, the, his leg? They didn't, but why would they break the legs? It was an act of mercy. Because then a person could not push themselves up. They could not continue the suffering of crucifixion. In Hebrews chapter 9, shedding is combined with blood. And it gives us one word in the Greek text, shedding of blood. According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Here it's used, I think this is the only time this word is used, but it's combined this idea of shedding and of blood to indicate again the necessity for the blood because that is the way God set it up. Say, why the shedding of blood? Well, he tells us because the life is in the blood, but he said, that, that's the way I established it. And then secondly, Christ shed his blood to bring remission of sin. And we have that here in um, Hebrews 9. So Christ was offered to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation, verse 28. Brings remission of sin. It brings forgiveness of sin. It brings the absence of guilt before God. And then the shedding of blood is the basis for the new covenant. I read in chapter 9. Let me go to Hebrews chapter 13. It's the basis for the new covenant, the covenant of salvation. And chapter 13 and verse 20, as the author of Hebrews comes to the end of this book, he reminds us of some of those things that are the most important aspects of this book, which talks about the superiority of God, the superiority of Christ, the superiority of the sacrifice of Christ, superior to the angels, superior to Aaron, superior to Moses, superior to anything that was in the Old Testament. 
He says in verse 20, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, emphasis on the resurrection, the great shepherd of the sheep, the emphasis on John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And God's care for us through the blood of the everlasting covenant, the new covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will. Now here he's getting into the application of this. What does that mean to us in our lives to say, I am redeemed, I am justified, I've been reconciled to God. What does that mean to us in our daily life? When we go out from here today, what does it mean that we have participated in the communion service? Now, I indicated to you earlier that when he says at the end of that, in 1 Corinthians 11, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes, it's the idea that it's a living sermon. If someone were to come into this building today and had never seen a communion service, never didn't have any idea what salvation was like, what it was about, what a church was about, he says, here is a living sermon of it. The sacrifice of his body, the shedding of his blood, that the work of Christ is complete, that the body of Christ is being formed, that there is unity and diversity within the body of Christ. That's all in that chapter in 1 Corinthians 11. It's a living sermon of what we believe. When we go from this place today, when we go into whatever our life is like, what does it mean to us that we have come together for communion? What does it mean to us that our sins are forgiven? What does it mean to us that we have the message of reconciliation? So he says to us, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight. We all strive to do what is well-pleasing, right? But in whose sight? <laughs> we try to do what's well-pleasing in our own sight. We'd be honest enough to admit that. Sometimes when we work for people, we try to do what is well-pleasing in their sight. We've all had jobs where we've done that. We've run machines or we've been building things or whatever it may be. And the boss comes up to check what we are doing. Is it well-pleasing in his sight? This reminds us that the ultimate goal of our life is to do what is well-pleasing in God's sight. That is what brings glory to him. Through Jesus Christ, there's the power for it. There's the reason for it. To whom be glory forever and ever. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in a few words, know that our brother Timothy has set me free with whom I shall, I shall see you if he comes shortly. The author closes this book. Greet all who rule over you, and all the saints, those from Italy, greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. But just before he concluded this book, he said to us, 
may God do this work in you to make you well-pleasing. It reminds us the power for the Christian life is not within us. It is within the Holy Spirit who is in us. It's a supernatural life that has to be lived with the supernatural enablement of God. So we remember the shedding of Christ's blood. We remember that what we believe impacts every day the way that we live. And then the new covenant is dependent on the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ. Hebrews chapter 8. Now this is the main point of the things which we are saying. We have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that the one, this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he's about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern which, you, which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. The theme of Hebrews. A more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which is established on better promises. The new covenant, not the old covenant. It's dependent on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says we have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Without the resurrection, Christ would not be seated next to the Father. And so as we come to this table time after time, as we have celebrated communion today, we need to remember what God has done for us in salvation. We remember and reflect on God's blessings in our lives. And we resolve to be faithful to him because he is the one who was faithful to us. He was a faithful high priest. So what's the significance of this table? It reminds us of the shedding of Christ's blood. It reminds us of the sacrifice of his body. But it is at the heart, it is at the foundation of everything that we hold to be dear to us in our Christian life. The work of Christ for us, the promises of God to us, what God is doing in our lives right now, what God has promised us eternally, how we deal with all of the difficulties and the problems and the joys and the wonderful things that happen to us in life, how we deal with all of the variety of life. Our anchor is represented in this communion service the work of Christ on our behalf, the one that the Father sent because the Father loved us. God showed his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the explanation in your word of the significance of the communion table.
Thank you for the opportunity to celebrate this table today, to be reminded from your word in a very general sense what this service is about. But Father, I pray also in a very personal sense that each one of us has come to a better realization of your work for us, that each one of us will have a greater resolve and desire to magnify you, to do that which is well-pleasing in your sight. And that, Father, you will give us opportunity this week as your ambassadors to share the truth of the gospel with someone who needs so desperately the life in Christ that we have. We pray in Jesus' name.